You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you very much for tuning into the podcast. Hopefully, everybody's having a great month, week, year, whatever. Hopefully everybody has had the time to uh, get outside when it's not so god-awful hot out and not sweating your balls off and spend some time with your family. Last night, I got a little wet. I played in the sprinkler with my daughter and my son, and and then we had some freeze pops. So kind of brought back some memories for me. Hunting wise, the dude, I'm telling you, the the velvet picks are starting to roll into uh, all the all the Facebook pages and the internet, and I love just flipping through my feed and looking at some of the big bucks that uh, are making their rounds this year. That's pretty cool. Uh, by the way, if you guys have any velvet pictures that you want to send me I, i'll post them on my facebook uh, or instagram feed whatever so send them my way and i'll say what state you're from i promise i will not give away the location of those deer but that's what's happening it's summertime the antlers are growing the velvet rut is upon us and uh i got some more exodus cameras in i need to go hang those up in the next couple weeks and uh then you know august is a week or is a month where i finish up i tie up all loose ends and then september is my layoff month right i do not enter the timber to do anything uh it's it's a layoff month because i feel september something happens in september the mid-september there's a a shift especially on on this farm so when that shift happens and these deer are transitioning from one spot to another i don't want to put any additional pressure in there to make these deer not want to come into that area i want the property that i'm hunting to be a safe haven and i want that property to be as untouched as humanly possible and the fact that i have a kid coming in october uh, and i won't be able to hunt in october as much maybe late october there's a chance that i'm going to be getting two months of unpressured hunting uh in my 
on, on some of my farms that I hunt. And then when the rut hits, that's when some of the other hunters start to, uh, come in and, and start hunting. That's when I'll get in there and hunt. And, uh, and that's when all of a sudden the pressure is going to hit. So hopefully by us laying off or by me laying off in September and most of October, hopefully that gets the deer comfortable. It gets them in a pattern. It gets them you know, staying in a tighter core area. And uh, hopefully the work I did last week or the week before hanging those uh, trail cameras or in tree stands will pay off with uh, me having an encounter come the rut. And there's that. Now, you've heard me talk a lot about Ozonics and uh, I'm a huge believer in that product. And I just want to read something off the internet, and this is what is ozone. There's a How Ozonics Works tab on their website, ozonicshunting.com. And then it just basically says, ozone is a naturally occurring cleansing agent found in the Earth's atmosphere. Ozone purifies the air we breathe. Ozone also occurs with a lightning strike. That fresh, clean smell after a thunderstorm is the smell of ozone, a colorless gas and powerful oxidizing agent. Ozone is also commonly used commercially to kill bacteria. And there's the rest of that paragraph goes on, but commercially used to kill bacteria. Now, bacteria creates odor. Ozone kills bacteria, therefore killing odor. Um, and by you putting that over top of you uh, and, and using it like ozone, like ozonics instructs you to use it, can drastically improve, it purifies the air going downwind of you. And I've seen it firsthand that uh, it works. And it's one of those things where um, you need to go look at some of the videos online of some deer and how they react downwind. There's plenty of them out there. At the same time, uh, it's one of those products where you got to have a leap of faith and uh, take it from me. Uh, and Ozonics is definitely, in my opinion, worth it especially when you get limited hunting opportunities and especially when every trip to the stand has to count and uh, it's one of those it's definitely one of those products that will give you opportunities and uh, the more opportunities you can get in a season the better uh, and that's kind of what hunting is all about is opportunities now we started off this year with Ozonics giving a $50 discount off of all purchases over $400. Now, they've I, I kind of leaned on them a little bit, and Ozonics is now offering $75 off of all orders over $399, basically. And the discount code for that is 9FINGERS17, the number 9 the word fingers, the number one, seven and no spaces. And that's how you get the discount code. So now $75 off in Ozonics is really, really good. Um, go ahead and, uh, take advantage of that. If, if it's, if you're looking for a discount, now you have it, you can save 75 bucks and it's a great way to create more opportunities while on the stand. So, 
Ozonics, if you have any questions or want to find out more information, just go to ozonicshunting.com. Go to their Facebook page. There's a lot of conversation on that. Uh, just type in, does Ozonics work? And I'm sure there's tons of information out there about that. Uh, so there's that. Today's podcast. Today's podcast, we're going to be talking with a hardcore public land hunter. And he's been doing hardcore hunting for over 30 years. His name's Mike Perry. He's from Pennsylvania. He, he's been a successful public land hunter in Pennsylvania. He's been a successful hunter in New York, and he's been a successful hunter in Ohio. And it's one of those podcasts that I could have literally talked for another hour and a half, two hours, just picking his brain and talking to him about his strategy. We talk about um, his growth as a bow hunter, how he's been successful, what he's learned from not only his mistakes in the field, but articles that he's read and information he's gotten from other hunters and how he's tweaked that information to apply it to the his hunting strategy and what works best for him. So that's what we talk about today. It's another kick-ass podcast, guys. I know you're going to love it. Uh, so enough of me talking. Let's get into today's Hunter Profile Public Land Hunter BS Session Strategy Podcast with Mike Perry from Pennsylvania. All right, on the phone with me now, all the way from Pennsylvania, is Mike Perry. How you doing today, Mike? Good, Dan. How about you? I can't complain. It's uh, not scalding hot out today when, while we're recording this. Uh, uh, the last couple weeks have been pretty humid and pretty hot, and I guess that's typical for Iowa uh, Iowa summers, but I just like bitching anyway. <laughs> Yeah, we finally just got rid of all the rain. It's been raining here pretty much all what's supposed to be our summer and the whole spring. So got a couple of days in a row, nice weather. So I'm on vacation taking advantage of it. Oh, awesome. Um, let's start this off with a little bit of background. Where, uh, so where do you actually live or what part of the state do you live in uh, Pennsylvania and what do you do for a living? I live in northwestern Pennsylvania, and um, I am a supervisor for uh, distribution and transportation of the newspaper in um, in Erie, Pennsylvania. Okay. So you work what, third shift? I work third, yeah. Third. It's basically and like a half, it's half second, half third. I'm like from eight at night till four in the morning, so it's kind of a weird shift. But, but you have you to make do. sure that the newspaper gets out that following morning, right? Yeah, yeah. We, we haul it 100 miles. Um, it's printed at a print site 100 miles away from Erie. And uh, it's a lot of challenges in the winter because we get a lot of snow around here. <laughs> so. Oh, absolutely. So then does that, with that job um, being, you know, you have to make sure that everything's printed and dis uh, distributed by the time, you know, by the morning so everybody can have their morning newspaper. Um, exactly. Is Is this a job that you chose uh, because you like to hunt so much and you felt that third shift would give you the, uh, best opportunity to spend the most time in the woods, or is this something that, Hey, uh, this is what I've been doing for several years. Well, I was in management for a while when I was younger and had my own business for a while. And, um, once 
I got this job here about 13 years ago. I kind of kept it because of the reason that it does allow you to hunt a lot more than, especially when you're on your own business, you're, you, you can't do as much, you know. So there was five years there where it was limited opportunities to hunt. But, right. yeah, it definitely helps working this shift for hunting. Okay. Uh, family man? Yes. Yes, I have two boys, seven and nine. All right. So they're just, I mean, they're in the, the new stages of uh, probably wanting to come out with dad all the time. Oh yeah. Since they were two, they've been shooting recurve bows. Um, I've been taking them out, checking cameras and on scouting missions in places that aren't too hard to get to since they were little now, but we still check cameras, you know, in the summertime together all the time. And, and uh, just got them a crossbow actually a couple of weeks ago because the oldest, the nine-year-old wants to hunt this year. So he wants to bow hunt. So I figured crossbow would have to be the way to go for now until he can pull back you know, enough weight. That's, a, that's probably a pretty good uh, entry point for a kid that age, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are dead eyes already with it, so it's unbelievable how good you can shoot a crossbow. It's almost not fair. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of guys who talk crap on crossbows that they shouldn't be able to be used for archery or, you know, some states, you know, mm-hmm. don't have an archery season. But, you know, I think that it's one of those things where, uh, you know, if you could get a new person into art, you know, into hunting through a crossbow, I say, why not? I guess. Yeah. I'm all for expanding opportunities for any kind of hunting. Cause there's just not enough of us around. And although I know there's some infighting between hunters, I think everyone should just join together and, and, and just realize we're on the same team and, and try to just, you know, be stewards of the land and do the best thing. Absolutely. Respect the game. Yeah. So how, We'll start off this way. How was your 2016 season? I was pretty good. I shot one of my best bucks ever with a bow in Ohio that I'd been after for three years. Pennsylvania, I passed up some 110-inch bucks, um, but I was was holding out for a bigger buck that I'd been after for a few years there, too, but that just didn't happen in PA. Right. So you were successful then in Ohio. Yeah, yeah. I shot a, a... pretty good buck had uh he had a drop time he's you know 150s 160s somewhere in that range okay now you mentioned you had some history with this buck yeah yeah i'd been bow hunting him i started trying to kill him when he was a three and a half year old uh at the beginning of the season i had a shot at him um it was kind of long range 38 to 40 yards and i've actually never even shot at a deer lot further than 28 yards with my bow so i didn't feel comfortable taking that shot that was the first day of the season one of the few times I'll actually hunt on the edge of a field, but he right. was coming out into a field and it just wasn't close enough. So I kind of forgot about him that year until the late season. I went after him because he was starting to come out into the fields again, you know, in January, it was real cold. We had a bunch of snow here. So that's basically what happened with him that year when he was three and a half. Okay. And then when he was four and a half, same exact thing. Could have had a shot opportunity at him on the first day of archery again in the exact same spot and i had an opportunity deer i knew where several of his beds were and uh i i snuck up on him one day in his bed during gun season but the only shot i had was at his head and i just wasn't going to shoot him in the head so i gave him a chance and uh, it didn't work out i missed him (laughs) i ended up having another shot opportunity at him in the winter time you know in late january and that didn't work out. I didn't, I didn't get a shot. I didn't actually get a shot at him that time. Some, some goose hunters in the, on the property over ended up 
shooting at some high geese and the the bucks all went back into the woods so yeah and i ended up finally killing them last year nice with uh it was, was this all on public land then this was uh, a farm that i hunt in uh northeast ohio that gets pressured by several people there's there's other guys hunting it um last year i was lucky because there wasn't as many guys in there as usual the one guy that's in there quite a bit wasn't didn't i did i never saw him not saying he wasn't there his stands were still there but um it's a small piece of woods it's a lot of field and all the surrounding land gets pressured pretty good right so it's public so it's pre- it's but there's, or it's private but it's there's it's pressure pre- on it yeah 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 yeah. i don't have anywhere where there's no pressure (laughs) be nice but it doesn't happen right so so that was your that was your 2016 buck in ohio sounds like pa didn't work out for you um so your buddy ryan reached out to me and said uh, this was a while ago i put out a little post on facebook that said uh hey i want to have some of the the most hardcore uh bow hunters that you know out there who are getting it done maybe on some public ground uh with lots of pressure and uh he brought your name up so i reached out to you and you know let's just ask this first question you know it sounds like you hunt a a little bit of private ground in ohio uh but in pennsylvania are you hunting a majority public ground yeah pennsylvania i hunt pretty much all public I, i don't I have permission for a lot of private land around here because I'm a goose hunter and then, you know, nuisance goose season, you ask farmers for permission and, you know, they're going to let you hunt. Same with, you know, another tip for guys, ask permission to hunt woodchucks or coyotes because farmers don't care for coyotes, woodchucks or geese on their property. And once you get to know them, there's a good chance you can get in there to hunt, you know, with a bow or a gun. Yeah, that's. A, that's so I do have a lot of a lot of private land around here I can hunt. It's just I'd rather go to the public because the private land land around here is just as pressured as the public, but it's the public's more vast. So I have thousands of acres that I can do what I want, and the deer that I'm hunting, you know, I can I can go after them, you know, 100 percent. Opposed to the private around here, you know, the buck might not be betting on the land that I have permission or whatever. I just found it easier over oh, the years okay. to concentrate on the public. So almost That's like right, yeah. 10 guys, 10 guys on a hundred acres is just as bad as, you know, 20 guys on 500 acres or, you know, yeah. or, or, or worse. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah. Because I, I, I look for, I key in on areas that are hard to, you know, in the, hard to get to for the average guy, you know, so on public um, I just have more to play with. I have more chances to get away from the crowds and on right. private, it's mostly farmland and you know, it, it isn't the situation that I want. So yeah. well, I'll tell you what, more. let's start at the very beginning. Uh, and then we'll get yeah. into how you taught yourself how to be, a, you know, or how you learned to be a, um, a better bow hunter. But how old were you when you started hunting? I started hunting when I was 12 in 1977. My uh, grandparents bought like 40-something acres. That's where I live now. I built a house out here um, in the 90s. But um, they owned, they bought 40 acres in 1969 when I was a little kid. We started coming out. They didn't live on it. It was supposed to be to retire on. And we started coming out, you know, on the weekends to cut the grass here and shoot. My dad's a big shooter. He's not a hunter, but he, he loves to shoot. 
and my grandfather was a hunter and my uncles hunted a little bit and um i just you know loved shooting i started shooting at an early age and i loved coming out here and my grandpa started taking me out small game and he would bow hunt and i'd sneak around the woods squirrel hunting and i'd learned how to you know stock game you know at a young age so it really did help out for the future you know so you so you feel that maybe for a listener out there who mm-hmm. really wants to be a better hunter do you do you honestly think that maybe taking a a, a rifle or a, a shotgun or some kind of you know like a 22 uh or even your bow and arrow and just walking mm-hmm. through the woods and trying to shoot squirrels and rabbits and maybe mm-hmm. other small game would actually helps people become better hunters oh yeah definitely help you become you know learn patience learn you know how to get through the woods slow and quiet how, how to, you know read the signs of animals that are you know you're alerting you know blue jays stuff like that and then when you're doing your bow hunting you can use all that to your advantage you know you know what's going on but um yeah definitely i think any way you can learn woodsmanship and learn area hunting is definitely going to help you your you know small game would definitely help out i think so that was uh that was a start for you yeah that's what i did i mean my my grandpa gave me a, a recurve bow when i was about 14 or 15 and I, I called myself a bow hunter and I walked around with it in my hand a little bit, but I mean, I didn't have any clue what was going on. I don't never shot a deer with it or anything. And <laughs> kind of put, I kind of put away bow hunting until I got, you know, a little bit older. So in 1977, you were 12. What, um, were you hunting with your, your father or your, your grand, your grandfather at that point? Were they taking you? Yeah. Out? My, yeah, my, yes, my grandfather and my uncle. Okay, and they would take you out with them, and then they kind of show you the ropes. Uh, was that just that was with a rifle? I take it. Well, that was uh, no, that was all shotgun um, hunting for like I said, small game. I, what, they wouldn't have let me hunt deer until I was sixteen because Pennsylvania, it's like the uh, I think it's the largest armed militia in the United States. Basically, <laughs> when gun season starts, yeah. literally, I mean it's not it's not as bad now as it used to be, but it. It was pretty crazy. So, yeah, they wouldn't let me hunt until I was 16 years old for deer with with, with a gun. Like okay. I said, I, I carried a bow around with me, but I wasn't really hunting. I didn't know what I was doing then. So, I got gotcha. you. In archery. So then, um, so then when did you, you know, in in 1980, early 1980s, 81, you were 16, and then you started hunting with them. Uh, what kind of education did you get from your uncle and your grandpa when you started actually deer hunting? Well, uh, basically the way they hunted was they just set up on deer trails and, and, you know, when it's gun season around here, you're just praying somebody, you know, kicks one to you, you know, very few bucks got shot around here because, you know, it just, I don't know, it's just so many, there's so many, there used to be so many deer back then. It seemed like you'd never get a chance to kill a buck. I think, my grandfather had killed one and my uncle two. I shot one when I was 17 and that was my first buck. And, you know, from then on in, I was just, you know, ready, but yeah, that's basically what they did was you just sat on trail travel corridors and on deer trails and, and, and hope for the best. Right. That's pretty, a pretty simplistic way of mm-hmm. describing it. So what was hunting like 
if you can remember back, you know, in the in Pennsylvania in the early and mid '80s when you were pretty young, what was what was hunting like back then? It was a lot about tradition, and you know, it just everybody was after a buck. You know, they, they didn't care what size the buck was. If you shot a buck, you know, you were like king of the hill or something. You know, it's just um, lot of, everybody was shooting all the year and a half olds, and uh, there really wasn't any mature bucks around back then. You 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 you'd be lucky to see. Well, you're all, you're allowed to spotlight at night. You know, shine for deer, and up yeah. till a certain hour. And you could you could spot all October, November, and maybe see one buck that was a two and a half year old. Right. And so it was yeah more mostly just geared towards killing any kind of buck you could see, and not many guys shot does back then. Right. So why was that? Why weren't does a big thing? I mean, back then, was it was it at all about venison? Was did anybody want to you know fill the freezer with some deer meat like they do today, or is it more of a like you said, tradition where all you care about is shooting bucks. It seemed like that was it, you know, the, from what I had saw, I mean, uh, just people wanted to shoot a buck. I mean, they just wanted to say they killed a buck. And, and when they, you know, they, they brought antler restrictions into Pennsylvania in the late nineties and it was fought hard. There was a lot of people that were not happy that they weren't going to be able to shoot their spikes and their four points anymore. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, it's just, you know, they, they, they got so mad at a point where they actually had death threats on Gary Alt, who was the head of the game commission, who changed the program, <laughs> started the antler restrictions. The guy, no, honestly, the guy had to quit his job and move from Pennsylvania. That's how bad, that's the tradition of gun hunting in Pennsylvania back then. I mean, that is nuts. Was, yeah. Just because somebody, just because somebody couldn't shoot a spike or four corn buck. Yeah, they brought antler restrictions to this area. It was four points on one side that had to be, and it really and in other areas of PA it was three points on one side. But regardless, people were not happy about it. They could not shoot. They couldn't just go to their normal spot and sit down and shoot a deer within the first two hours and ride, you know, parade it over to camp and hang it on the pole and you know tell right. everybody they got one. So you know, then they had to start actually hunting for the deer harder. And it wasn't accepted by everybody. Right. So can, can you remember back then once the antler restrictions were implemented, did that result in less hunters because they're just like, screw it. I'm never going to shoot that. So I'm done hunting. Yeah, exactly. Over the years, it's gone down. Um, you know, I couldn't give you the exact numbers. It used to be over a million deer hunters is what they used to say back when I was a kid. And now it's down to like maybe 700,000, 800,000, something like that. So yeah. Quite a few people. I mean, all you heard was how it was going to shut down all these little towns because in the two weeks during gun season, you know, they make all their money for the whole year at some restaurant because the hunters are in town or, you know, yeah. whatever. It's just a bunch of BS. But, yeah, that's <laughs> none of that ever happened. I don't know of any little towns that actually shut down and are a ghost town now because right. we have antler restrictions in PA. So. Right. So did, on the flip side of that, did more people start to – shoot does at that point just because they want it like you know if you if you want to kill something and then it's like hey man i want to kill a buck but i can't because there's no there's no eight pointers on my property i'm going to shoot some mm -hmm. does instead seems like it yeah they they gave out a lot more doe tag they called it herd reduction and they started giving out a lot of uh, more doe tags and it seemed like the guys were filling them 
and then you'd have the guys complaining, oh, we shot 17 doe last year, but for some reason there's no deer around this year. It's just like, well, maybe it's because you shot 17 doe last I mean, not one guy, but, you know, out of a right. you know certain farm or something like that. But, yeah, I mean, all this was happening because Pennsylvania, there's a lot of forest. I mean, the area I live in is all is, is farmland, you know, but right. down most of Pennsylvania is forested, mountainous, and uh, they weren't getting a regrowth on, on the uh, trees and stuff. I mean, they had to do something because the deer were just, overpopulating you know you'd see herds of i mean i've seen back in years ago you'd see 100 deer in a field sometimes spotting it's just that's not good for anybody no absolutely so. not i can remember uh when i started i was hunting back in the late 90s um i remember seeing 25 deer a night and i thought that mm-hmm. was awesome and then the, the more you learn maybe that's not the best thing uh what you know in the in the late 90s and this is this is becoming kind of a, a kind of a, a herd type conversation for the state of uh, Pennsylvania. But once they implemented that those antler restrictions and started giving out more uh, doe tags, what did that do to the? And you know, you feel free to speak on your area. But what did that do to the herd in Pennsylvania at the time? I think it was great for the herd. I mean, you, you've got. You know, regrowth, reforestation, whatever they whatever they call it. I mean, there's there's less stress on the deer now as far as providing food because this area um, we get oh, the area I live in most winters. Now this year winter didn't happen, but you're, you're going to get 180 inches of snow in the winter time. Yeah. So you know that isn't good for deer when they you know. So right now there's less stress on there's less deer, but it's just better for the overall health of the herd. We actually have a balanced buck to doe ratio now more way more than it used to be. I mean, I couldn't tell you what it was in the 80s, but, you know, I would guess 10 does for each buck. And now, you know, it seems to be really close. I mean, some of the spots that I have, I hunt some private farms just to shoot does. You know, I don't buck hunt them. And uh, because I, I save the, my, my doe spots on the public for the rut and that. But, uh, yeah, you'll, you'll get pictures of several bucks compared to each doe. So there's, it's definitely has helped out quite a bit. So that ratio has improved. Yeah, it has improved, and the rack size has improved, the body size has improved. Nice, so. nice. That's awesome to see that, you know. So so the people who were bitching, you know, that they couldn't shoot their their spike and their forkhorn, mm-hmm. what, I mean, do you did you have any friends that were pissed off by that? By Actually, that? most of my friends were kind of just like me. They've always been trying to pass up, you know, uh, smaller bucks to shoot bigger bucks all along, you know, once, ever since we got that out of our system of wanting to shoot a buck. Right. And, uh, so guys I know, no, but I've heard people complain, you know, about it. And then I've heard people say, well, thank God for Gary Alt. Now he's, you know, he's gone. I mean, he's yeah. left PA now, but because they finally shot the biggest buck of their life, you know? Yeah, so. for sure. For sure. So at what age, I mean, when you first started hunting, um, I take it you were the guy kind of, did, did you have a brown it's down mentality? Um, well, what, yeah, when I first started with a gun back, you know, uh, when I was like from 17 to maybe 20 or 21, that's, you know, you just wanted to shoot. You weren't allowed to shoot doe during gun season, during buck season. It was yeah. two weeks of buck season and then three days of doe. But, uh, you know, so yeah, I just wanted to shoot a deer and then, as I started getting into bow hunting and reading about deer and trying to learn how to study deer and realizing what you had to do to kill a, a bigger buck. And, you know, then I got interested and I just totally threw in, you know, all in on 
um, scouting hard and, and trying to figure deer out hunting, you know, a couple of different States within 50, 60 miles of my house and, right. you know, try to get a bigger buck. So when did you pick up the bow? It was about 1986 is when I started getting serious with it. I was 21 and my girlfriend at the time bought me one for Christmas. And at first I went out and I found, you know, I didn't know anything. I just started reading articles in North American white tail deer and deer hunting and that. And I just started looking for rubs and scrapes because that's what people were writing about. So I figured that's right. what you had to do, you know, so it's so much right. more than that. And I don't even worry about rubs <laughs> and scrapes really anymore, but, but, uh, yeah. And I, I would, I built a couple stands out of wood, you know, on the property here and just, you know, that, that's what I did. And I, I had a, a, a close encounter with a buck that first year that I bow hunted and he came right in 12 yards and I was literally shaking so bad that my arrow came right off of the rest. I mean, I, I couldn't even pull my bow back if I had to. So, you know, I knew right then and there that I loved bow hunting. And that's when I, the next year after that is when I got into hunting Ohio. And the year after that, I started hunting Ohio, New York, and PA. Right. And so, just, you know, so, full throttle since then. So that one encounter with that one buck mm-hmm. in 1986, you know, your first year as a bow hunter, that was the nail in the coffin for you. I mean, that was when it, it was a nail in the coffin for a lot of deer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. For me. Yes, definitely. Yeah. I mean, as far as you becoming obsessed with bow hunting and, yep. and, and traveling and, and all that stuff. Yeah. So, so then as you know, back in the early days, you know, you said you started reading a lot and that helped you, um, you know, you know, hunting scrapes and hunting rubs and, and all that kind of strategy, but then maybe reading it and implementing it and actually being in the timber is two different things. What yeah. early on, what were some things that you maybe read and were like, Hey, this works. Or maybe you read and you're like, Hey, this doesn't work for me. You know, I'm going to try something different based off that idea. Yeah, exactly. There, there was a lot of information out there and, and, you know, some of it was good and a lot of it was just BS to sell articles. And, you know, I, I had to kind of like read the tea leaves to figure out what it was. It was trial and error and a lot of walking around. But um, one of the things that I figured out, I mean, as far as scouting, some of the, uh, the things that helped me the most were an article I read back in the late 80s about measuring the size of buck beds and measuring uh, deer tracks to figure out, you know, the size of the animal, whether you're after a mature deer or an immature deer or the doe or a buck, you know, whatever. Um, that, that definitely helped me out. I, I started, I, I must've spent three years walking around um, measuring every bed and every track I, I found, uh, found in the woods, you know, yeah. I also at that time was reading articles about hunt, um, scouting in the off season. So, started right off the bat when there wasn't a whole lot of people doing this in 1987 or 88 i was i was going out as soon as the season ended and i was walking every square inch of everywhere i hunted which now i don't have to waste my time doing that because i know how to re you know hone it down to where you need to walk but you know back then i it was good because i learned the terrain i learned i i found the bedding i found the sign and i started learning how to set up on deer and be successful right so your first couple years when you were 21, 22, 23 as a bow hunter, did you instantly start hunting mature bucks or was it, I just want to, I want to kill some bucks 
uh, right away, or or did you put restrictions on yourself right away? Well, my plan my plan back then was um, Pennsylvania. There really wasn't any mature bucks to hunt, so I was shooting the first buck I saw that was decent. So say it was a small eight point or whatever. Even though it goes against everything I do now, but back then, you know, the chances of me killing a mature buck, I could have sat there all day long, every day, all season long, and never seen one for you know several years. So I used Pennsylvania as a way to like hone my shooting skills. When a buck come in, I would shoot does with my, you know, if I had doe tags, I'd shoot doe. I'd shoot a small buck in PA. I started hunting New York, and I did the same thing over there. There wasn't a whole lot of mature bucks over there. Their state was just like Pennsylvania, except they had a longer gun season, and you could shoot buck or doe. So in New York, I'd also do the same thing. I'd shoot the first buck that I saw, and I'd shoot does, and I'd just learn how to kill deer, you know. And yeah. th- But in Ohio... I just never shot small bucks. I only shot, I would always hold out for a big buck. And the first day in stand in Ohio, I almost killed a 130 inch buck. Okay. And hunting that buck for two years just taught me a lot about how smart deer were. That, that deer, I ended up killing him the next year. And he taught me, you know, that you can't just walk in the woods and set up on a scrape or a rub and kill a deer. Gonna, you know, most of the time, but it's not, it's not that simple. So. Right. But in the beginning, you were passing some deer, right? You were passing. Yeah. What, what were you passing? In Ohio, I was passing anything that wasn't a big, you know, a mature buck for the area I was hunting, which I would say is a three-year-old. Okay. Now, in Pennsylvania, I would pass up, you know, spikes and scrubby racks and try and shoot the nicest buck I could kill in Pennsylvania, you know. Okay. So maybe a 14-inch spread, eight-point or something like that is what I'm trying to kill then, back then. Gotcha. Okay. New York. So you kind of said you learned to kill. Now, I think that's something Mm -hmm. that I'd like to elaborate on because I feel, and that's one thing when I started hunting, um, for some reason, I never really went to the brown it's down type uh, phase in my life. For some reason, when I started um, hunting, bow hunting, I went straight to the mature uh, bow hunting. And I think there's something to going through in its brown, it's down phase because it does teach you to kill a buck. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Do you feel that yeah. that's a, that's a necessary part of a bow hunter's growth? Yeah, I do. I believe so. Because I hear so many stories over the years, you know, not only from people that I know or just, you know, um, reading articles or whatever, or guys that are, you know, the big buck comes in and they, they fall apart. They can't, you know, they got target panic. They got this, they got that. I mean, and I'm not saying that never happened to me in my life, but once you kill a bunch of deer with your bow, it just, it, every, everyone is helping you. You know, you know how to make a move when the deer's walking in. You can, you learn how to read their body language. You know, you know, when, when it's time to draw and when it's not time to draw, you know, when it's time to, you know, let down if you have to, because you can't get the shot and then you're going to anticipate drawing again. You just, just helps you out so much when that big buck comes in i'm i feel like i'm as calm and cool and not a bit nervous at, you know when, when i when i do finally get the chance you know nowadays since i've shot over probably 100 deer with my bow over the years in three states you know including does and all that so yeah so it just going through the pro- process of actually harvesting the animal makes you has made you become more relaxed today throughout you know throughout the years because you've actually had that experience yes okay seems uh seems like the right thing you know um Mm -hmm. so so then 
in those early years, you know, let's say before you were 30 years old and you started, you mm-hmm. really started to, uh, it sounds to me like you were really observing the, the terrain, observing your surroundings, observing deer movement and behavior. What are some of the things that you've learned that you learned from the, you know, from when you picked up the boat when you were 21 to, let's say, you're, when you were 30? What are some of those things? Uh, and, and over time, maybe, how did age help you? Um, well, some of the main things that I learned were how to, if you want to kill mature bucks and pretty much anywhere, you have to hunt where there's not anybody hunting. So that helped me. I, I learned to find areas where other guys weren't going, and that's where I was going to see the most deer. Um, I learned to, you know, decipher um, h- how deer move throughout the terrain, um, tell the difference between buck bedding and doe bedding, and that's real important when you're hunting public land. If you're hunting public land and pressured land, if you're not hunting real close to the buck bedding or the doe bedding, I just don't know how you'd ever shoot one because all the sign is made at night up by the road, you know, up by the fields, and you're never going to see a deer over there, and maybe a year and a half old buck, but. So, yeah, that's, that's the kind of thing I learned over the years now. I made mistakes, you know, back when I first uh, started, started learning to get, I uh, use water as a barrier. Like most of, my, most of the places I hunt are either you're crossing a creek or a river or you're into a beaver dam or you're into a marsh. And that, that's what I've found through the years works best for me. It allows the deer to get bigger and, it, and, and just you can use that stuff to your advantage you know, for the wind, for setting up, for approach, everything, so that the deer don't know that they're being hunted. Okay, so, so, so that was before you were thirty. You were you were kind of learning this and honing, into that, yeah. and honing this. So that was back in the day before there was any type of digital scouting. Right, you couldn't go yep, onto a exactly. computer to do it. What did back then? What did some of your scouting tactics look like? Well, what were you doing okay. pre and post season uh, to to find some of these locations? Well, what I did was I, I had pencil, I had gazettes. Uh, they, I don't know if they, I'm sure everybody's seen them. There. Each state has like an atlas gazette. And what I would do for Pennsylvania, Ohio, New York, it might sound funny nowadays because you have Google Earth and it's so easy. You know, I have Scout Look on my phone and and Onyx Maps and everything else. So you know, it's it's almost you know not fair, but. Back then, all I had was an Atlas Gazette, and I would go to the section in the front where it said hunting state properties, and I would look for anyone that said waterfowl hunting, because I knew if it said waterfowl hunting, and usually it didn't even say nothing about deer on there, but I knew if it said waterfowl hunting, that it was going to be a swamp, there's going to be cricks in there, and there's going to be meandering rivers and oxbows and beaver dam levees and all the stuff that I could use to my advantage to kill a big buck. And, uh, so I would go in there and I would, I would find those type of type of properties and I'd go in and scout back then. I would scout every single inch of the place, which I, you know, nowadays I don't have to do that anymore, but that's what I used to do. That was a big, the biggest mistake I was making back then was hunting it too soon and, and, and probably walking around in there too much. But, so when you were looking at those gazettes, there had to have been, and you said you started looking for waterfowl, there had to have been some kind of experience that you had or a first time for you where all of a sudden it was, 
I got to start looking at swamps, marshes, uh, because I saw a big buck in there. And if there's a big buck in here, there's probably a big buck in a different marsh, swamp, or waterfowl sanctuary. Exactly. In fact, when I ever, if I ever did see a mature buck before antler restrictions in Pennsylvania, it was in a swamp. So I knew that that was the best chance because it, you know it's they're they're thick, they're nasty, they're hard to get to, and, and and the best thing is guys don't want to cross water. Guys don't like. I don't know why. I'm just glad they don't. But they don't like. You know, <laughs> most hunters don't want to get wet. You know, they don't. Right. Want, I, I want. I hunt every day in that I hunt. Rarely do I ever not have on hip waders. And if I don't have on hip, some of my spots, I'll wear chest waders and I'll, I'll carry the hip waders on my back, on my stand, bungee to it. And when I get across the deepest water, I'll leave the chest waders right there and I'll put the hip waders on and go the rest of the way. I mean, it seems like a lot of pain to go through, but, you know, if you want to have a chance on, you know, pressured property, I feel that's what you got to do. Right. And so, so. And we hear this a lot on, on, especially on this podcast, when we talk to some of the other public land guys, you got to be willing to think outside the box and go and go places and do things. Uh, example, crossing creeks, using water to access stand locations that are, is going to put you into an advantage uh, from the other hunters. Yeah. And another thing that, that works for me, which I probably shouldn't even say, but, you know, a lot of these <laughs> A lot of these big properties, you know, these big public properties that I hunt, these vast marshes and swamps and stuff like that, you know, there's landowners all up and down the roads, you know, that have tiny little parcels. Some of them might have 40 acres. Some of them might have one acre. You know, it seems like the guys that hunt the public, they go right to the parking lot and they park there and then they hunt from there. And meanwhile, this whole square has public hunting all, all through it. So I go and I actually just ask people, do you mind if I park on your land? Or if, if it's public along the road, and I'll just park right there and walk in by somebody's house. Because if I, I ride by their house and there's not targets and, you know, Mackenzie's sitting in their yard and stuff like that, I'm assuming they don't hunt. Yeah. So some of my spots, I really don't have to kill myself to get to them. Those are the ones I usually will take my kids in and kind of teach them, you know, on, on, on the closer stuff to get to. And in a situation like that where it's swampy, you might not have to go – all the way in backwards some you know some of my spots are 1.8 mile walk and some of them are you know quarter of a mile you know right. so just look for places like that where you don't have to go as far because people just don't like asking people for i mean i've noticed hunters don't like asking people for permission to park on their land you know people that hunt yeah. public i'm saying so right for sure so then from an from an access point you know you're you were you were asking people not to hunt their property, but just to walk through it to so you could get exactly. to the back the back side of these properties. Mm-hmm. Did you no, did you notice that you're set up in let's say a morning hunt or even an evening hunt? You get in there mm-hmm. and the other hunters start going into the parking lots and they go you know they or park on the road. Did that? Did you witness them bumping deer towards you or witness the other hunters? making you know you know just walking in the normal trails that everybody walks in did you see a reaction from the deer herd because of that well mostly deer and gun season if i'm hunting deer and gun i notice that quite a bit but deer and bow uh i don't hunt the early season with the bow because i there's the only way that i know you can do that is the way like the guys on the hunting bees do it and you know that's that's no joke i mean you don't just start doing that 
and thinks you're going to be able to get that close to a buck bed and shoot one. So I don't have it honed down yet. I don't really do that. So I don't hunt that much in the early season, um, you know, for, for bucks. So I don't really see that. But I notice that on my pictures, on my cameras, you get more pictures as the archery season goes along. So I'm assuming that all through the beginning of November, all the traffic from the hunters um, that are close to the parking lots and that, that's pushing the deer further and further back. That's why I stay out of there until it's, until it's about the 26th of October. And that's usually when I'll move in. And, you know, now these deer haven't been bothered by anybody. If I've done my homework right, you know, right. I've right. got spots that no one's going to. And I got deer that are unpressured. And they're, the last thing on their mind is going anywhere near the road. Right. So I'm going to key in on the food sources closest to the bedding, you know, like apples or choke cherries or acorns or just browse, you know, multiflora rose, anything that deer like to eat when they get up and stretch their legs. Right. So how old were you when you, because I, I mean, it, it wasn't until just recently, early 30s for me, that I realized I can't hunt every day. And I, if I'm going to be after mature bucks, I can't hunt every day of the season, especially early mm-hmm. season. How old were you when you kind of realized that, you know, going in as much as possible is not a good thing? Yeah, that was probably 20, you know, like I said, early 30s. I mean, probably at least 20 years ago, yeah. um, I was in my early 30s. I, I realized that I started realizing that I was seeing less and less deer every time I went in there in the early season. Cause I used to be all gung ho. Oh my God, it's the first day of archery. I got to run out there and you know, I'm gonna kill a big buck. You know, there's right. big rubs in there. There's tracks. So, um, I'm going to get one. Well, I realized that the big bucks on, on uh, public or pressured either way, pressured or just public land, they just don't move around a lot during daylight. I mean, not saying they don't, but they, they don't move far, you know? So, right. You know, I, every time I was going in there, I was leaving scent. I'm making noise. I'm walking in in the morning or walking out in the evening, making making noise, leaving, leaving ground scent. And it's just, you know, the deer were, were, were catching on. So even though I had a good spot, I was ruining it by going there early. So right. I started figuring that out and started waiting until it was later in the, you know, in the season and, and going in. And then I started having, good, you know, more success that way. So you, did you, for me, I would go, here's an example of me trying to hunt too early. I was getting trail camera pictures of a mature buck, but uh, on a trail camera, but it was like one or two in the morning. Right. So I thought, Mm -hmm. Hey, I'm going to go hunt this stand on a cold front in the first or second week of October. And I'm going to hope he, that cold front pushes him out. Well, Mm -hmm. yes, cold fronts are great to hunt, but it's Mm -hmm. not going to get a buck up on his feet five hours earlier to come to that, you know, to come to that location than normal. So I hunted that stand location one or two, three times, and then I never got trail camera pictures of that buck again the rest of the season. And I have a feeling yeah. it's be- because I bumped him. Did did you witness that type? I mean, did you have experiences that made you hold out? Yeah, I mean, oh, uh, just what what I would say is just in, in lack of seeing more deer. That's why I started, you know, waiting until I would go in later in the year because you'd go in and you'd start seeing say a bunch of little does or maybe one one decent buck you couldn't get a shot at you'd see some small bucks and then the next time you go you see like three deer and then the next time you go you don't see nothing and then you're just like what what's going on here well they didn't have trail cameras back then you know 20 years ago right. or if they did have them i, I sure couldn't afford one back then <laughs> and the early ones were pretty expensive so i started using the cameras in my advantage in like oh four i think it was and right 
you know, once you got those, I mean, God, that just, it makes it so, so much easier right. than, than, you know, the way right. that you used to have to do it with just all watching tracks and, and stuff like that. So. Right. So you started, you started not hunting, uh, until mid, like late, late October, right? You said the 26th. Mm-hmm. So that was, yeah. that was in your early thirties. You started doing that holding out. Yeah. What I, what I started doing was I, I, I still hunted because you know, I, I like to eat deer meat. So I would hunt does. I would find some, um, properties where there was a lot of deer at and it would be, you know, a slam dunk to shoot a doe. And I would go and hunt those spots, not kill myself. I'd spend the first couple of weeks of October hunting does. So I'd shoot two or three does with my bow between PA or Ohio or what New York or whatever. And, uh, I, I, that's the way I'm out there. I'm getting it out of my system. I'm hunting, but I'm not messing up my, my spots. I'm planning on killing a buck at. So right. you know, I'm a firm believer in having as many properties to hunt as possible. Right. Absolutely. So you get your, you kind of get your satisfaction from, uh, smoking a couple, uh, does for the freezer, right? Exactly. So here's a question for you. Do you feel that shooting a doe helps knock a little rust off, uh, and prepares a guy for, you know, the, uh, the, you know, when, when they have the, that encounter with a buck? Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, does are, especially the older ones, they're every bit as smart as a buck is, Right. you know, there's just more of them around. So you see more of them, but you know, uh, yeah, definitely because you know, you get a little nervous if, I mean, if you're not, if you're not getting a little bit of an adrenaline rush when deer are coming, then, you know, maybe you're doing, you're doing it for the wrong reason or something, but you know, so that, that helps. I definitely think it helps you keep calm. And like I said earlier, learn how to, when you need to draw, when you can make your move, you know, watching the deer's body language. I mean, these things are important, you know, able to, when a big buck comes in, you can make the shot. Right. Okay. Makes, makes a lot of sense. So then, you know, you're, you're teaching yourself to stay out of the timber, um, and, and not go in until the time was right. What other big game changers were there for you, uh, as time progressed, let's say between 30 and 40, you know, as, as you started hunting, um, I take it you, you had some success. Um, when did, was there a time where it was just like, I, I have a strategy, I have a methodology, I know exactly what I need to do and then, and then follow through on that. Well, I, I, I guess all I could say is, you know, when I, when I was in probably my early thirties, I started realizing that I needed to find as many spots as I could to be successful. I wanted them to be the same type of situation. So I feel like, you know, people should find something that works for them and try and duplicate it in as many spots as possible. So for me, that was finding as many swamps, marshes, you know, uh, that I could find because I like to set my stands up in certain situations in those areas. And it seemed to help me out the most. So that's kind of what I did. I kept, I was building my, building my spots up in three States at the time. You know, which took a lot of time up. I was scouting all year long. You know, I mean, it was a twenty-four-seven, three-sixty-five deal with, with hunting for me for a long time now. So. Right. So you were you were in it. Like your main goal in life was to kill, to kill bucks or to kill deer. Just to be hunting for deer. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Now, t- elaborate a little bit more on this because you you talked about this um, before 
we got we we actually started recording, and that was killing and hunting does. Mm-hmm. Talk to us. Okay. About that. Well, yeah. Well, I basically just love to eat deer meat, and now nowadays, you know, I don't. Um, you know, I, I don't want to shoot a buck unless it's a buck I want, you know, a mature buck for the area that I hunt in. And uh, so if, if I want to have deer meat, I, I, I've got to shoot does. And, you know, I just, that, that's the, one of the reasons why I do it, you know, during, during gun season and during archery season, I do a lot of doe hunting, you know, in the early season. Now I'm scouting for does for my, you know, bow hunting mature bucks. You know, I, I do, uh, that, that's one of the main concerns I have is where doe groups are. I feel like these does um, come into heat around the same time every year within a couple of days. I've noticed that over the years watching, you know, observing from the stand. And it seems like and through trail camera use, you know, that it seems like these bucks come through looking for these certain does that are living in these little patches, you know, of cover. And it can really help you out. You know, you want to keep those does by your stand around. You don't want to whack them or, you know, and you don't want to go in in the first week of October and shoot a doe that, you know, I had a, a, one, a doe and a fawn last year in Ohio where I killed that big, that big buck us after three years. I hunted that stand or that area a few times. And every time I hunted it, she brought a buck following. So, you know, if I would have shot her in the early season, that would have been a big mistake because the day I killed my buck, I had three Pope and young bucks chasing her around my tree stand. Right, so she was a mature doe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so basically educating yourself on, you know, when these doe groups start coming into heat, that kind of played a role in, uh, like you being successful hunting bucks. Exactly, because it, uh, one of the things that I've learned over the years is that, you, you know, you can use those does at your advantage, especially the ones that like to bed in certain areas or like to walk through funnels and bottlenecks which i like to hunt funnels and bottlenecks a lot i know you know everybody says you can, big bucks won't come through those well maybe the bucks maybe i'm i don't know i got a whole house full of bucks that'll tell you different in zillions of pictures that you know I, that's what i usually hunt is some sort of you know pinch point or something in the middle of a big woods you know or in a swamp or whatever but right. I, that's not what i'm seeing i'm seeing mature bucks walking through those types of areas as long as they're undisturbed and as long as there's does moving through there they're going to come around looking for them right for sure now are you a fan of hunting all day yeah i i, I sit sun up to sundown and that's another thing that i guess earlier i could have i could have talked about a little bit when you asked the you know progression that would have been it used to be when i first started hunting ohio in the late 80s or early 90s i'd hunt in the morning and then i'd go back and i'd hunt in the evening during november you know and right. back then i didn't have trail cameras so you know i didn't know what i was missing you know and then um over the years i started now well, i'll stay till 11 today now i'll stay till noon you know and then i started realizing well, i'm seeing all these big bucks between 10 o'clock and two o'clock. And, you know, why is that? And I'm, you know, only thing I could come up with is that's when the does are bedded. So it's probably the easiest way to find one is if they know where their bedding areas are and they can, they, and they can go looking for them, you know, that in the midday. And I'll tell you, I've shot most of quite a bit of my mature buck I shot with a bow have been between like nine in the morning and two o'clock in the afternoon. Really? You said, mm-hmm. so a majority years of years now. So, you sit in a travel corridor or pinch point, and you mm-hmm. sit all day. And the bucks, mm-hmm. the bigger bucks, are from nine to two. That's you've killed your biggest bucks from nine to two. 
Yep. There's Absolutely. A little, there's a little part of me that really hates you because that's okay. <laughs> because <laughs> I hate I've I I bet you I can count on my nine fingers less than nine <laughs> times that I've sat all day long and I don't want to do that. But the more I talk to guys like you, the more I look at my trail camera, um, uh, my trail camera data off deer lab. It's one of those things where it's a no brainer. Now I have to do Mm -hmm. it. I have to sit there all day long and, uh, and just gut it out because that's when the, the, the mature bucks are moving. How old were you? when you started seeing that and was it one of those things did it take you a while to get into sun up sundown hunting it did that it, it took a few years but honestly it was in about the mid 90s when i started noticing that i needed to be sitting all day long right. you know so i had been into it for you know eight or ten years of you know i'm sitting there thinking oh my god I, i'm sitting on this kind of sign why is it why aren't they coming around you know well and then i'm and leave the stand at nine o'clock in the morning and, and walk out of there you know to totally educate the deer as though you know what i'm doing and yeah yeah I, I started doing it and it actually happened to me by accident a few times too where i'd i'd shoot a nice buck in ohio and then that day bring it home come friends would come by we'd celebrate, have a couple, probably too many beers or whatever. And, you know, end up waking up in the morning a little bit after it got light out and be like, Oh man, huh? It's still getting this, you know, this place is good to hunt. Uh, they got the, the right wind there. I haven't been in there yet. I'll go in there now, go in there at nine o'clock, eight o'clock, whatever in the morning, climb up in my tree. And as soon as I was up there, there's this bucks chasing does running rampant all through. And I had to shoot up, end up shooting one of my nicest bucks in PA at 10 minutes after 12. You know, it was a six buck I saw from nine in the morning till then. Right. Okay. So, you know, it just, yeah, proves to me that, you, you know, you don't have to always be there right at dawn to, to, kill, a, to kill a deer, at least that time of the year. Right, for sure. So then you started, you started, you minimi- minimized your intrusion into the timber. And when you do, mm-hmm. did go, you were sitting from morning till night. What mm-hmm. would happen if the wind shifted in the morning or uh, the wind shifted in the evening? Was that a get out of there and, and go back to the truck and find a new place to hunt, or did you stay? Well, back in the early days, I would just sit there because I didn't know any better. Yeah. But I started hunting with a, a lone wolf climber, you know, a long time ago. I can't tell you what year it was, but it was a long time ago when they, when they first started being available on public land, you know, you're just better off being mobile, you know, uh, back then I started doing it just out of pure people were taking my stuff, you know, and right. so, you know, you can only stand that so long. I still use a lot of permanent stands with sticks that I put up on, you know, like in Ohio on the private properties that I hunt. Uh, there's other, even though they're being pressured by the Amish and other guys that are there, it's not people, people that I met before. Uh, I trust them. They don't take my stuff. So, yeah. You know, everything that comes up missing is usually on public. Yeah. So I'm using a lone wolf. I got sticks in a lone wolf and uh, a stand, and I also have a lone wolf climber that I, I mostly hunt out of the climber. Okay. So, so I'll, now, I'll move around to answer your question. Yeah. If, if, if the wind wasn't right, I'd move around. But you can set up in certain situations to not even have to worry about that. You know, if you're hunting the right kind of spots, you, you know, you, you can, you know, a lot of times those wind shifts are what people are considering wind shift is when the wind dies down in the evening. You know, if you're set up in the right spot near some water, that thermal heat off of that water is going to pull your scent back behind you. So you want to set up 
on the edge of that, you know, and that way you don't have to really worry about that in the evening. That's what I find most of the time with the wind switching would be in the evening, you know, when the, when the, when the wind dies down, you know, it, it seems like it goes certain, you know, different directions. But if you're set up the right way, you don't even have that happen to you. Right. Okay. So then as, as you get older now, we're talking, how old are you right now? 51. Okay, 51. So so you started hunting less. You start but when you do hunt, you're hunting morning to tonight. You're you're mm-hmm. now mobile. Um mm-hmm. once you were mobile and not hunting on some of these on let me let me stop there. Let me go back to before let's say you had a lone wolf and you were mobile. What what kind of tree stands mm-hmm. were you using? You know, like your lock-on type stands, uh, anything, basically buying the cheaper stands because, you know, there's a chance that they're going to get ripped off if you're leaving them on public property. So, you know, I would, I was buying those type of stands and using, um, climbing sticks. And, you know, I would, back then I would set up several stands for different wind directions in in an area, you know? So yeah, I guess to answer your question about that, I'd have to get down out of one stand and into another one before I knew how to set up properly with the wind and thermals and all that. Once I learned that as the years went on. And, but now that I have, I have that knowledge and I have the, a climber or I'm using sticks in a, in a, in a portable, I, you know, I, I can basically just, I don't have to ever leave the woods. I, I have to move a little bit. I'll, I'll just move a little bit. I mean, a lot of times you don't even have to go that far. You go a few trees over or whatever. And as long as you, you know, I'm always dropping that milkweed. I learned that from a guy that I knew that hunted traditional years ago, probably one of the best things. Now everybody's talking about it because Dan Infall talks about it and all that. But yeah, that it, there's, there's no better tool to know which way the wind's blowing. And, right. you know, I've been doing that for years. It will really tell you how the currents move on certain right. days. You know, your wind current never even goes towards the ground. It goes up and it just keeps rising with a bottle of puff dust or whatever, you're never going to know that right. you know, with a string on your bow. You're never going to know that. But when you watch that stuff float and then when it hits where the sun's coming down through an opening and goes straight up in the air, you know, that you know, that you can start learning over the years how to set up, use that stuff to your advantage. And, uh, you know, I, I rarely get winded and, and I don't have, you know, I don't, I don't go through any extraordinary, you know, uh, regiment for, scent control i mean i try to keep my ground scent down but you know i keep all my stuff in tubs you know with and my boots and all that but you know i don't go pull a motor out of a car before i go hunting or anything like that but you know what i mean i'm not i'm not i'm not hauling around you know ozone machines or anything like that i don't get winded i have deer come in from downwind to me you know every once in a while and it's because they can't smell me they're my my scent's rising above them okay that's why they're coming in i gotcha so you're are you critical about your tree stand placement then? Are you, uh, or are you, yeah. I'll be in the general area. No, I'm, I'm pretty critical about where I want to set up the specific tree that I want to be in. You know, that's why you have to have not just the climber, but you have to have the, the stand and sticks also, because, you know, I'm doing all that, all that work in the winter time. So as soon as the season ends until spring green up, Every tree that I'm going to hunt the next year is all being picked. They're all being cleared. You know, I'm logging them all and, and uh, for what winds are going to be best, what I think the thermals are going to do there. And, you know, that's, that's how I go about it. So, so are, are you you're keeping a journal of all these different stand locations that you, th- that you think are going to be good spots for that next season? Exactly. Each 
farm or public land that I hunt, I have I have stuff written down where my stands are at, what's the best wind, and I also leave it have it all on my scout book, you know. So yeah, that's that's what I do. And I keep track that way I know what's what's good for which wind directions or you know, some 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 of my stands I hunt them when the wind's blowing the opposite direction, right across the trail. Because if I'm hunting them on a high pressure when the wind when the sun's shining on a cold morning, you know, in my sense going right over the trail anyway, it doesn't matter. The deer think that they have the advantage, but you know, they really don't. So they're coming in with a crosswind and I'm and my, my sense floating right over top of them if if the there's a steady wind. And usually in the morning, your scent rises straight up anyway, almost all the time, you know. So, you know, especially on a light variable wind day, your, your scent's rising. So, you know, you yeah. don't have to really worry about it so much for a morning hunt. Makes a lot and, of and sense. I, and I will sit all day, but it doesn't mean I'm always in the same exact stand. I've done that before where I've sat in the morning, you know, with the climber, and things just weren't right. The wind just started going the wrong direction. And I, I, you know, so I got down, I got out of there and moved to another spot and ended up shooting a buck at two in the afternoon at that spot. Right. You know, so a couple hundred so, yards away. So when you do something like that, is that like a true running gun where you are going from, uh, let's say you're not seeing anything or there's bad wind, you tear down, you go to your next spot. Is that you're looking for sign, you're looking for terrain or a pinch point or a heavy used trail, or are you just, or is this something that you've already found through scouting preseason? Exactly. It's like a year in and year out preseason scouting and using the information that you gather from the season before. So, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I don't just walk around and put up a stand over sign. I, I honestly, if I showed people where a lot of my stands are that I killed deer, they'd just be like, well, there ain't no rubs here. There's no scrapes here. What's going on? What are you, what are you doing? But I don't, I don't really worry about that stuff. You know, I like setting up in, you know, like where there's dead water and on one side and, and, and a meandering creek on the other side where there's a bend in the creek. And that way you could set up on a tree. I'll have stuff. I'll have a prepared a tree on either side of the bend, you know, so my wind is going to be blowing down the creek or on the other side of the creek. I'll approach it from, the opposite side and cross the creek there and, and climb up. Now I'm not leaving any scent on any of the trails that the deer are going to walk down through that, that pinch point, you know? So, right. You know, it's, it's, it's foolproof, you know, you, and you can hunt with a couple different winds. And if you have the right weather conditions, you can hunt it with almost any wind, right. you know? So, and in the morning, same thing. So have you been doing the same tight, the same thing for the last, it sounds like, you know, from your, mid thirties to, to today, you kind of have go, gone about you know, these public pieces of property and even those private pieces of property approaching mm-hmm. them the same way. Um, exactly. ha- has anything got, you know, has anything changed from your, your forties into your fifties? Well, just the advent of the trail camera, you know, I started using them about when I was 40, I would say maybe a year or two before that. And, you know, I, 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 I started learning, you know, how to use, luckily figured out how to use the information the right way. You know, when I first started, it was just, you know, get a picture of deer and, oh, there's a buck there. I, I should know, I should go hunt that spot. And I realized that that didn't work. And I started leaving cameras in certain areas way back in the swamp that I wanted. I, I just, I had too many spots for that year. And when this first happened, I had too many spots for that year. And I just left the cameras there. I didn't touch them all season long. I even let them go through gun season. And I went back when I checked the camera and I seen, you know, there's, there's 
big buck moving through here. There's does moving through here in the mornings and in the evenings. There's mature bucks moving through here during daylight. The cameras aren't missing. There's no guys on the pictures of the cameras. So obviously there's no humans back here. This is a great spot to hunt next year. And I started trying to add one of those every year, at least at least one every year, uh, one or two areas I'll leave cameras just sit the whole season, you know, and not even go in there and touch them. And then I use all that for next year. Okay. So. And, and what did that do? I mean, did that, did that result in success for you or just knowledge? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, both. I mean, knowledge and success. And it made me realize that if you, if you're, if you're fiddling around touching your cameras too much or, you know, because a lot of guys, they, they want to check them all the time. And it's just, you know, the more you go buy them, the, the worse it is, you know, the, the deer are going to catch on to you, especially if you're trying to hunt a specific buck on public land that already they're sketched out enough as it is. If I, if I, if I was going to go in there and hunt three or four times in November and walk across trails to check a camera or something, it's just going to, I'm just going to lessen my chances of shooting that buck. Now I might kill another buck that's walking around cruising that came from two miles away, you know, but, right. um, yeah, it, just, it breaks down your chances of shooting a particular deer, that's for sure. Okay. So over the years, you've gained all this knowledge. You've, you've taught yourself. You've learned not only from your, you know, from your experiences but from others and, and, and implemented that knowledge on you know, using those principles to help you on the pieces of property that you hunt. What are some mm-hmm. of the biggest failures – that you've had as a as a hunter but were able to learn from those failures and become successful because of it well one of the biggest failures that i learned as a hunter is i used to i might have mentioned it before but i used to you know you'd i'd read these articles in these magazines i didn't know really how to hunt and i believed in a lot of that stuff that you read uh, i've watched hunting videos over the years and you, you start believing that this is how it can be done but when I realized, you know, and like I say, again, a lot happened in my mid thirties or so that, you know, hunting, looking for sign by fields and, and, and basically if you find an area with a lot of buck sign, that's where everybody who walks into the woods is all going to try and set up right over top of it. And when I realized that, you know, stay away from that type of situation and, and, and more use terrain and water to my advantage and stay out of my areas that that is you know right you know helped me out quite a bit so i'd say my biggest mistakes were hunting in the mornings or you know early in the season hunting my places that i planned on killing a buck at early in the season and trying to hunt buck sign all the time just rubs and scrapes instead of you know getting closer to the beds like i should have been and and um hunting you know staying out of my areas until it was when the deer were going to be moving late october early november Okay. And then just curious, was, has there ever been a piece of gear or that, that you purchased and were like, this is, this has helped me become a better hunter? Um, honestly, my lone wolf climber, <laughs> yeah. you know, either that or trail cameras. I mean, trail cameras just in the last 10 years, but yeah, uh, the climber has just helped me out so much because it's just you know I, you can't you can't put thirty tree stands in a five thousand acre swamp. You know, it's just it would take you forever. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? So for it's sure. able to go in and out 
you know, with, with that on your back and, you know, it's not that heavy, you know, you bring all your gear and stay in. And the other thing I would say would be staying, um, but also helps you sit there all day long, you know, so yeah. if you're comfortable, you can stay there. So yeah, my tree stand, I would say would be the, the most important thing other than my bow. Right now. What about encounters? You, know, you hunt a, a lot of public ground, some heavy public, mm-hmm. heavy pressured public ground. Have you ever had uh, encounters with other hunters, um, you know, maybe oh, yeah. coming coming into the same area or, you know, your guys' paths cross and one person's not happy? How do you handle a situation like that? Well, un- unfortunately, yeah, I know that all too well. There's one particular place I hunt. There's a guy who'd been in hunting in there since the 60s or 70s or whatever, and I found a place in, like, the early 90s, and I started hunting in there and, you know, I, I tried to be friendly with the guy, give him information because that's what I think you should do. You know, I, for years I was a representative for the United Bowhunters of Pennsylvania County rep. And, you know, I would be uh, against everything that I would stood for to not, you know, uh, try and help other hunters out. I mean, that's, that's, that we need more hunters, you know, but this guy, he felt threatened. He, he would, I found out later that he was taken, my cameras were coming up missing in my stand. This was back in the early nineties when I was still using, you know, putting stands up. I found out later from friends of his that hunted with him, um, that he was taking my stuff and throwing it in the creek. You know, he was trying to intimidate me, keep me out of there. And he still hunts that spot. And he, he hates it that I shoot big bucks out of there, but he's just going to have to live with it. I'm gonna keep doing it so. <laughs> Do you ever put those big bucks in the back of your truck and drive by his house? No, no, and no. Honk the horn. I don't want to rub it into it, but I, I have talked to the warden about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and he knows everything that's going on. Yep. So. so how do you confront somebody like that? Well, that guy, I have. He's kind of avoided me the last couple of years since you know. He, my, one of my friends got a picture of him on his camera. Um, he was he was took the guy's stand. And my buddy got a picture on his camera, and he he didn't press charges as he should have. But, uh, so that guy's kind of avoided me the last like two seasons. So I haven't really had to talk to him, but before that, I knew he didn't like me. I knew he didn't like, you know, you could just tell by the way he talks, yeah. and, but I always tried to be friendly and I tried to help him out. And that same piece of public, um, I found another spot where I shot a big buck in 14 back there here in archery. And, uh, I ran across two guys in there the next season. The one guy's from Texas. He comes up from Texas to hunt there in a rut. And he grew up around here. And then the other guy lives in town. And we talk to each other. We text each other. I let them know when I'm going to hunt. They let, when the guy comes from Texas, I give up that spot. And I'm telling you, this is a dynamite spot. I could probably kill a big buck out of there every year if there was no one in there. But he comes up from Texas, and I don't go there the whole week. I let him have it, you know. I can hunt anywhere else around here. There's plenty of pro- public land around here. So I'm trying to be totally unconfrontational with people on public land because they got as much right to hunt it as I do. So. Right. Well, we're over an hour here and I could probably sit and talk oh, to you for, no, that's fine. It's not your fault uh, because I love, I, I could sit here and talk to you for another two hours about, you know, <laughs> uh, deer hunting. Yeah. But for someone who is just maybe getting into the public land um, or, you know, public land hunting or, you know, maybe a, a bow hunter who's struggling uh, and, and just can't get success, can't, hasn't been able to find success over the years. Um, 
or even a, a new hunter in general, what's some advice that you can give to a, a new hunter or someone who has not found success? Um, well, I, w- I would say don't, don't hunt the first hot sign you see right off of the parking lot. Try to get back away from as many guys as you can. So, you know, and it doesn't have to be a mile in. Like I said earlier, you, you can find spots, ask somebody for permission and maybe go right behind their house and you might find a hot spot that no one's even been in in five years, you know, and just do that type of thing. You hunt smart, wait till it's the right time to go in there. Don't kill your stands early in the season. Right. Wait till, wait till the bucks are going to move. Right. And then other than, other than that, I just have one last question for you. And that is mm-hmm. how has, when, when you started bow hunting back in like 1985, 86, when you were 21, uh, how, how has hunting changed from then till today? Well, it's changed in a lot of ways. It's become a lot easier. It's a lot easier for guys to jump right in and have success without doing a lot of the work, you know, that you had to do back then. I mean, back then you had to look for tracks and, 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 um, scout your deer in the summers with glass with with glasses i mean that's what i did for years before there was trail cameras so the biggest way it changed is technology in my opinion right you didn't you didn't have google earth back then you didn't even have computers back then you know what i mean so you know you could you could never get an overview of what your property looked like you had to get in there and walk around so i'm glad that in a way that i'm really glad i mean even though i love all the advantages i have now through technology i'm glad that i learned how to do it the hard way because that helps me you know, now that I do have the technology to help out, I mean, it makes me a better hunter. Right. So do you feel that, yes, that technology allows people to have success easier, but mm-hmm. do you feel that also that it kind of, you know, they may not be, they may not have a, a as good of woodsmanship as exactly. all the other stuff? Exactly. Yeah, because the problem, and I'm not, and I'm not knocking guys for it, but a lot of guys, you know, they, they go out and they get some trail cameras, and you know, they got, they got all the best equipment there is, and you know, uh, um, ozone machines and you know, um, charcoal suits and all this other stuff, and you know, they, they they don't really know how to you know find deer tracks, deer bedding, you know, know the difference between it, you know, a, a buck bed, a doe bed. You know, right. um, they just don't, they don't put it all together. They're, they're just, you know, I don't know. It, it, I do the same thing now. So it's really, I can't really <laughs> right. knock anybody for it, but you just don't learn like you, like you did back in the day, because that, that's not what's being taught nowadays. Nowadays it's being taught, you know, put up a food plot and, you know, uh, put out all your cameras and, you know, deer's going to come by, but this isn't, it's not, you know, exactly how it always happens. Right. So, so now you're you're a father, right? And your, mm-hmm. your, your boys are starting to get into hunting, uh, right? You just have two boys, right? Two boys, seven and nine. Yep. Seven and nine. Right. And, and so now they're starting to get in, uh, interested in, in what the old man's doing now. Are uh-huh. you as a hunter changing? I mean, is, is more yeah. thought kind of going to, uh, towards them because, you know, it's like, Hey man, I've been successful enough. I've got a wall full of deer. I know what I'm doing is your thoughts kind of transitioning to your sons now at this point. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, this year, you know, normally I'd take all my vacation during a rut, which I did still take vacation during a rut, but 
I took off every Saturday this archery season so I can take my oldest out um, bow hunting in the evenings. Uh, I won't hunt in the mornings, but, you know, we'll go out and hit the apple orchards and stuff like that. And I plan on taking them during the rut on his days off of school. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking for more spots right now that have uh, more deer in them, just deer in general. I'm not worried about, you know, I don't want to teach him, you know, big bucks. I, I, I tried to keep that out of his head to, to worry about that. I got those guys concentrating on shooting deer. And that's what, that's what we're going to do. We're not going to, we're not going to, you know, I'm not going to sit around and have my kids hold out for a big buck. I want them to get success, learn how to kill deer and scout and read sign. And then they can, they can make the decision to hold out for big bucks when they get older. Nice. Makes, uh, yeah. makes a lot of sense. Well, I tell you what, Mr. Perry, I, uh, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to mm-hmm. come on the podcast and talk with us and share your experiences, man. No problem. Well, Anytime. Good luck this upcoming season. You too. And there you have it, another podcast in the books. Huge shout out to Mr. Mike Perry for coming on the podcast and chatting with us today, sharing some strategies, sharing some stories. Huge shout out to all of you for downloading the podcast as usual. I am your biggest fan. Thank you very much. Uh, huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast Ozonics, Gearhead, Wasp, Exodus, Ripcord, Deer Lab, Bighorn Outfitters, and Lone Wolf Tree Stands. Be sure to take advantage of all those discounts that are happening right now. Um, and my son is actually at the door yelling right now. So I think he's just a huge fan of my partners as well. Outside of that, If you get the opportunity, please check me out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Also, go to iTunes, leave a review, or leave a review anywhere that you download your podcast. I would really appreciate it. Go be a member of the National Deer Alliance. Get educated about everything that's happening in in and out of the deer woods. Um, There's bills and legislation and laws that are being passed each and every day that affect the deer herd in your state. And there's, uh, you play a part in that. You being active, you being aware, you being educated on those matters is very important, especially when it comes time to vote and who to vote for. And uh, the National Deer Alliance can help all of us be a voice when it comes to all that garbage. Other than that, I think we're good. I think we're good to end it. (laughs) So if you're going to be in a tree, please wear your damn safety harness. Have a good rest of the week.